Welcome, welcome. We have another teaching today I'm excited about. Oh, this one's got my name in the title. Matthew Nolan, that's me, that's me. Matthew Nolan and David Perry's Malkizedic Doctrine, Subtracting from Torah. But there's more. Should we keep only the commands contained in the book of the covenant and not the ones contained in the book of the law? So today's teaching is addressing this article that has been posted on the internet for quite some time, but um, it was time to address it. In fact, there was a question that was posed to the ministry from a member in our internet audience. And um, I want to um, begin with that. This was a question that was posed um, by a member in our internet audience. Because again, last week, I um, addressed another document. And I'm doing it again this week? Well, what are you up to? The question was thus. Have these authors come privately to you according to Matthew 18? He says he has via email. That would be this author. I'm not sure that counts, really. It doesn't say send him a note. It says go to the brother. And did he then bring his witnesses privately? If not, discussions over as far as I'm concerned. That lady has obviously been in the Bible and is doing things biblically. Then she goes on to say this. I don't see the need for you to constantly be defending yourselves from folks who would impugn your doctrine. So, very valid points. The reason that I wanted to address this article today wasn't to defend this ministry but in the hopes that people that have stumbled across this article will now have an answer. So my whole premise is education in biblical literature and a hope that when people come across various articles, whether it's the one that was entitled last week, Debunking, or this one, which actually has my name in the title, that people could actually get the resources to go to the Word and find reams and reams of Scripture rather than narrative and narrative of opinion. So that was my hope, that this would be an educational resource. Now, the interesting thing, as you'll notice from last week when I addressed the article that was written, and hopefully this week as I address this article, it's the same few things that keep coming up, which is actually quite um, comforting to me because if there were like hundreds or tens or even numerous amounts of holes in what is being taught from this ministry, you'd be, but it's the same few um, things that keep coming up again and again and again. Because really, as we've addressed the book of the covenant and the book of the law polemic, it's not like there's all these gaping gaps. 
There's a few simple things that come up each and every time in these articles. In fact, I want to mention just six of them before we get into today's article entitled again, if you weren't paying attention, Matthew Nolan and David Perry's Malkitzedic Doctrine Subtracting from Torah. Should we keep only the commands contained in the Book of the Covenant and not the ones contained in the Book of the Law? So the same questions keep coming up, six of them. Number one, the Josiah and Hilkiah text. That always comes up. That passage where Josiah, in his reforms, and Hilkiah the priest, they find the book of the law, and in that particular piece of Scripture, authors, whether it's this week's author or the one from last week, then try to wrench a position out of that text and make it say something that it doesn't. Well, these are synonymous books. Well, the text doesn't say that, but they use the Hilkiah and Josiah text to try and wrench a position. That always comes up. We've addressed that numerous times, and we'll address it briefly again today. Number two, the second thing that always seems to come up is assumptions. Assuming that the Torah is written chronologically. Assuming, that's a big assumption, that the Torah is written chronologically, and that means these authors are not distinguishing between narrative and command giving. Maybe they don't even understand, and that's not a slight, because I didn't before I started to teach the Torah. The narrative in Torah is chronological, but the command given isn't necessarily chronological and actually falls into what's called achronological, meaning chronologically, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's chronological. It's narrative. But the command giving isn't necessarily chronological. Case in point would be Exodus chapter 16, I believe it's verse 33, which is in the midst of the narrative, which is chronological, of the manna week. So in Exodus chapter 16, verse 33, the narrative, which is chronological, is the manna week. But it says right there, within that narrative, that Yahweh told Moshe and Aaron to lay up the jar of manna in the Ark of the Testimony. But the commandment for the giving of the Ark of the Testimony didn't happen until Exodus 25. Because narrative and commandment giving are not chronological in equality. This is a huge thing that our authors continuously trip on, which would cause you to establish a false premise that the whole of the Torah is chronological, thus bringing forth a false conclusion. So that's the second thing. The third thing that comes up constantly is, well, if I look at the book of Deuteronomy, there's covenant, the word covenant appears in the Deuteronomy, therefore it's got to be book of the covenant. So the Deuteronomy statements um, is that um, 
our authors aren't establishing the difference between just coming across a word covenant, which can mean a law enactment, and the covenants of promise, which are Malkitzedic. Covenants of promise, Ephesians, it's stated there, the phrase covenants of promise, a dedicated phrase, they always have a proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal. You will not find a covenant of promise past Exodus chapter 24, verse 11. You cannot find a proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal until the time of Yahushua. And you'll see it again in our prophetic future in the book of Revelation with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is a huge misconception, not understanding covenants. And that is what I call systematic covenant theology, which is what this ministry's strong point really is. The fourth thing that seems to come up a lot is blanket statements that, well, there's no historical, documented, or extra-biblical proof of this. And we've already shown in last week's document, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten points that refute that clearly and concisely. Historical, extra-biblical, and theological history, whether it's from the Oxford University Press, whether it's Hebrew and... Um, um, Hebrew scholars and professors at universities. Again, we've shown that that isn't a true statement. And the fifth thing that comes up often is our authors, they catch their contradictions. They actually do end up catching their contradictions as they're writing, and then they backtrack with statements like, well, you know, we can't keep all the Torah, and they backtrack with these statements which I categorize as the inconvenient and impractical for today clauses that they like to put in. And that's because they see there's gaping holes in their theology of consistency. That always comes up. There's a self-awareness to that hypocrisy. And the sixth thing, the final thing that comes up, did last week, and we'll see it again in this week's narrative, is there is no awareness of the ascents of Moses. Moses didn't go up the mountain once, twice, three times, four times. Our authors often think maybe Moses went up there once or twice. Not knowing when his ascents were leaves gaping holes in the theology. If you think Moses' fifth ascent is his first ascent, then you've left out a huge, huge part of Scripture. Moses ascended the mountain and descended the mountain ten times. We need to know exactly where those ascents were in the reference of the covenants of promise. Was it before blood ratification, after blood ratification? Where were his ascents? If we don't have that information, we're going to draw a false conclusion based upon a false premise. And I know I keep repeating that, but this is basic stuff that we should have learned when we were back in high school. And that's why the Bible tells us to be quiet before we answer. 
And I think sometimes in this internet world, we're so quick to give a response. And that's why I have not responded to this article. And I don't know if it's been out a year or two. Because I like to take pause and make sure that I can do things properly. And I hope that I can do today. So, just to open with, I just brought you there six points that keep coming up. If there were a hundred or a thousand, then we might really have a problem on our hands. But I tell you, I have been taken to task by teachers in the United Kingdom, South Africa, Oklahoma, Missouri. I'm not mentioning any names, okay? And it's the same Half a dozen points. Puerto Rico. I'm not mentioning any names. It's the same half a dozen things, okay? He's messing with his hat. Okay, all right. I'm not going to do any funny accents either. I want to establish a foundation of truth now as we progress into the document, okay? To open with, let's establish a foundation of truth because this is what our author says in his article, quote, normally, and I'm not, I'm going to really, I'm going to keep it calm today, okay? Because I pray that I will not be in this document even though I might, find it hard. Normally, he says this, I, normally I tend to keep myself, keep to myself and let people believe what they want. I rarely feel the desire to publicly address other people's teachings. I'm not laughing here. This is what the author stated in his statement. Now, those, those of you that dig down a little deeper and want to investigate further, you could go to this author's, and I'm not mentioning any names, you could go to this author's Facebook page and go into the history, and you will know that this is an absolute false statement. It's a false statement. In fact, our author has a prolific and quite vitriolic history of attacking teachers publicly on social media without going to them personally or privately if they disagree with his theology. So openly, from the beginning, we've got this false statement that has been made by the author that anybody can investigate and find out is simply not true. And secondly, our author does state this. After privately trying to reason with both of these teachers over email, I've decided that I should go ahead and write this public response. So going back to my opening um, statement that an, a member of our internet audience had, um, had the question, had this person come to you according to Matthew 18? And, um, you know, I don't think email really is part of that. My answer would be, well, the author's claim to have spoken to me or David Perry is actually patently false and utterly baseless. And I just called David Perry two days ago because I said, I just want to make sure because neither I or David Perry have been contacted by the author for an open scholarly investigatory discussion on our positions or the work of this subject to date. We have not. Not by email or any other means has the author tried to truly enter into a theological discussion about 
my position or David Perry's position on the Malkitzedek. So that, again, is a false statement. How you can make those false statements publicly, I don't know. That's between the author and um, his own conscience. But the author does assume to assert comment, in fact, on Dr. David Perry's books and his doctoral dissertation that, according to Dr. David Perry, he hasn't read. He hasn't read. So how are we to trust statements like this and then any other subsequent statements afterwards? It does breed mistrust, does it not? Again, you have to be very careful that we just walk in honor and integrity and our yes be yes and our no be no. I have not been contacted by this author. So again... Now, let's go into the title. Last week's title had debunked in it. This one's even better. It's got my name in it, right? The title's a dead giveaway to me because right at the outset, the title says, really, it presupposes that the book of the covenant and the book of the law are the same, and they are not. And that was proven in last week's um, teaching addressing the Malkitzedic two-theory book debunked. So again, I'm not going to go into it. You can look in the description below and you can go back to last week's teaching that is also linked, the debunking. And you can see just by the beginning, there's a different Hebrew word. There's the Hebrew word Sefer Brit, which is Book of the Covenant. And then there's another Hebrew word, Sefer Torah, which is Book of the Law, that is then translated into different words in the Greek, in the Septuagint, and then translated into the Greek in the New Testament, different words between Brit, which comes across, and, of course, Torah, which comes across into the Greek. We have nomos, and with the Brit, we have diatheke. So, there is total disparity within the source language of the Bible that these two books are not the same in any language, Greek, Hebrew, Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew, um, excuse me, Greek New Testament or Septuagint. That is a good starting point for disparity from the very beginning. Um, of course, we know that um, the reference to Book of the Covenant is Exodus 24, verse 7, and Book of the Law is Deuteronomy 28, verse 6. Now, the, the author does state this next quote here. He says this, This article is based on my research of Matthew Nolan and David Perry's public teachings on this topic in addition to my email conversations with them. This is an outright fabrication, an outright fabrication. It, it pains me to say this publicly, but it's astounding to me because as stated above, what I said earlier, neither I, and I just, like I said, I called David Perry this week, neither I or David Perry have ever had email or telephone conversations or letters in the snail mail with this man. Now, has he gone 
off on his Facebook page about us publicly and social media? I'm sure he has. I'm sure there's a thread somewhere. But that is not having a conversation with us. It was not directed to me privately or personally or David Perry. So to make an utterly false statement like that is a shame. And I do not use that word lightly. To be a Bible believer and say that you're following Yahusha and to make public statements like that. It is no wonder we're in the mess that we're in today. And then the heathen looks at us and they go, well, how are you different? How are you different? We are supposed to be distinctly different in our conduct, in our speech, in our manner. We truly have, and we need to have the respect to go to one another. We truly do, privately. And then if the brother does not listen, do exactly what it says in Matthew 18. Then you go with two brothers privately. And then you bring them before the congregation. And then, finally, you can hand them over to Satan. In that order, and that order only. So, again, these things really do cause me great pain to say it. But, again, this is necessary. It is necessary. Again, the author says this. I focus specifically on their belief that the commands contained in what they define as the book of the law are no longer for believers today. Again, this is a patently false statement because the author hasn't contacted either Dr. Perry or myself. He doesn't understand the polemic to begin with and goes about trying to establish a false premise with the article or what I call he tries to erect a straw man and then with the straw man, you blow the straw man over and now you're right. But it was a straw man to begin with. It's, a, it's called straw man theology. And that's what the author does. He erects a straw man that then he, of course, blows over, leading the reader to a false conclusion. It's a very dangerous thing, and we have to be careful because Torah to the Tribes just recently did a teaching called The Book of the Law. We did a two-part series that proves that this statement is patently false. We never stated this. Torah to the tribes doesn't believe this at all. The book of the law teaching proves that. The author states this. For those who are unfamiliar with my views concerning the role of Torah in the life of believers, I'll give you a quick summary. I am a Torah-pursuant Christian. This is what the author states, that he is a Torah-pursuant Christian. Again, what we find here is the author is implementing a change of law based upon what is inconvenient and impractical today. Because the above statement, being a Torah-pursuant Christian, is actually a contradiction in terms, isn't it? It's a contradiction in terms. The definition of a Christian is not someone who pursues the Torah, is it? Talk to any pastor. 
That is not the definition of a Christian. It has never been the definition of a Christian. In fact, the author has actually given us the Christian definition for a Judaizer. He's actually self-identified as a Judaizer. We should be very beware. Beware. Reader, beware. He's actually self-identified as a Judaizer. A Christian definition of a Judaizer is a Christian who is trying to pursue all of the law in an unchanged format, actually leading you to Judaism and saying that you can bring Jesus with you. That's Judaizing. That's been around for 2,000 years, and we need to be aware of it because it leads to Antichrist. And we have to be very careful in these last days. So again, these things keep coming up, and it makes me be very aware and vigilant, vigilant in these days. Our author goes on to give an an analogy. Now, it's somewhat comical in the theological scope of things, and it goes something like this. Um, In Missouri, there are speed limit laws that apply on certain roads, and then our author goes on to state, much of the Torah will apply again in the future tense. So our author actually admits in his article that there is a change of the law. But the change of the law is not according to Scripture. It's according to what is convenient and practical for the author today in his Christian Torah pursuant career. Well, that, 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 that's scary because, again, if there's going to be a change of law, it has to be according to Genesis 49.10 and Hebrews 7.11 and 12. That's the only change of law that the Bible sanctions. Outside of that, you're making up false doctrine. Does that make sense? We've studied this, but this is a red flag to me that we really, really have to be very, very careful. Our author's change is not based upon a Torah-sanctioned passage in the Old Testament or New Testament, but a convenient sidestep because he's aware of the gaping hole in his theology as a Torah-pursuant Christian a.k.a. a Judaizer, right? And any Christian pastor would call him a Judaizer for trying to propagate such false theology in the 21st century as they would have done in the 1st century. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Truly, truly shocking to me. So... Then, another statement, the author makes this statement of what he believes is Torah to the tribe's position. Quote, followers of Yahushua, no, followers of Yeshua today only need to keep the commands found in the book of the covenant. Again, this is not correct, and this is not Torah to the tribe's position at all. We've explained this in the book of the law teaching. Genesis chapter 1 through Exodus 24a is the book of the covenant issues, Malchizedek issues, but the actual book of the covenant itself is Exodus 19.4 to Exodus 24.11. 
But what we're talking about is that Yahusha hasn't replaced the Levitical priesthood with the Melchizedek priesthood. He's actually reinstated the original Melchizedek priesthood. There's a big difference between replacing the Levitical priesthood or reinstating something that was in Torah before there was ever a Levitical priesthood. So again, making these broad brushstroke statements that are actually full statements, this ministry does not believe either what this author is accusing us of believing or what the author believes in himself. So these things can cause one to end up in a maze of confusion. And I hope that I can set forth clarity to all of those that would stumble upon this article. Does that make sense? How about in the back? Okay. Now we get into the meat of the author's article, because I know you're all like on tender hooks here, aren't you? This is what he says. Here are 10 reasons why you should reject this theory, the Matthew Nolan, David Perry theory. It's not a theory. It's actually sound biblical covenant theology. But he states, here are 10 reasons why you should reject this theory. So let's look and address these 10 reasons that our author says why you shouldn't believe what is being taught from this ministry. Number one. He says this, the Bible never makes a clear distinction between the book of the covenant and the book of the law. In fact, sometimes the two titles are used synonymously. Of course, I have heard that argument so many times. And then they go to the Hilkiah text. The Hilkiah text, which we've addressed extensively in last week's rebuttal, on the debunking one. But Hilkiah, just to recap, the high priest, he found the book of the law and thereby he found the book of the covenant. The author tries to wrench a position from the text and one cannot use the confusion of the nation finding what they had not been keeping for scores of decades to reinterpret Torah to another conclusion. Because this is not honest scholarship. You can't use scripture to try and force something in the text that's not there. Does that make sense? The Hilkiah text they use to try and wrench a position. Another one that comes up oftentimes is Ezekiel 20. Now the only reason it comes up is because I've actually demonstrated that this is a clear distinction in law Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 24, if you want to turn there, it says this. I'll read it directly and then I'll paraphrase. Because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes and polluted my Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's idols. Wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good, judgments whereby they could not live. Now, the context of Ezekiel 20, if you read it, it's all about the children of Israel leaving Egypt, coming to the wilderness, coming to Mount Sinai, starting to keep the Sabbath, transgressing the Sabbath, building the golden calf, transgressing the commandments and covenant breach 
of the golden calf and then the subsequent giving over to the Levitical priesthood. So my paraphrase in context of Ezekiel chapter 20, if you read the whole thing, don't start in verse 20, but actually back up all the way to verse 1. But now I'll give you the paraphrase. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 24. Because they had not executed my Malkitzedic judgments, but have despised my Malkitzedic statutes, and have polluted my Malkitzedic Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's pagan idols. Therefore I, Yahuwah, gave them also Levitical statutes that were not good and Levitical judgments whereby they should not live. That's the paraphrase in context with the whole of the chapter. Now, how much sense, think about this, now how much sense would it be that Yah gave them pagan statutes that were not good and pagan judgments after lamenting that their eyes were after their pagan idols, their father's pagan idols, because that makes no sense. Yahweh is not the author of confusion. He wouldn't be doing that. It makes much more sense to realize and accept that both the Malkitzedic and the Levitical are both Torah given by Yahweh, but the Malkitzedic is his perfect will and the Levitical was the permissive fix. That makes much more sense in the context. And then, because they will take this and try and wrench the text to say, oh, it's talking about pagan commandments. And you're like, no, surely not. Because every time the phrase commandments is used in the Torah, and it's 63 times in the King James Version, it always, not sometimes, but always, always refers to Yahweh's commandments. Never, that means never, never, ever, ever does it refer to statutes of enemies or pagan nations, ever. So do you see how to wrench that from, is, is to me, this stuff keeps me up at night. Because these people are actually teaching others. And it's not coming from here. It's coming from here. 63 times in the Torah, in the King James Version, the Bible tells us what it means. Not once ever does it mean statutes of enemies or pagan nations. So how you could wrench the text into that, you're consciously, consciously doing it. It's willful, defiant, high-handed deviation from the Bible. And to me, that is very, very scary. That's the kind of thing that made me leave Calvary Chapel. So I'm like, I can't sit under this anymore. That you're choosing a religion over the truth of the Bible, that I don't see that that's true conversion. And I'm not to judge but if you're truly converted, the Spirit would not allow you to do that. 
Because the beginning of wisdom is what? You better be scared of Yahuwah in a healthy way. The fear of Yahuwah. You don't add to the word and you don't take away from the word. The only change that you can make in the word is a sanctioned change that the Bible already has written into it. And the only one that I found is the Genesis 49, 10, Hebrews 7, 11, and 12 clause that is in the Bible. And that's the one that Yahusha instituted because he is Shiloh and he actually fulfilled prophecy. Because I believe he is my Messiah, crucified, raised, and sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not standing according to that Christian song. Who's, have you heard that she's laughing, right? In Christ alone. And it's like, what? Sounds good. Not true. Hello. Remember that one? What was that one that we saw? We saw, um, we were on holiday at the coast. Just shows you where mine's at. And it was like a, my wife had downloaded some Christian music and we were listening to it and it came up on our iPhone and the guy and I'm like look he's doing the devil sign we can't and she's like what what sign was he doing he was oh it was the hang loose I thought he was doing the devil horns and I was like going off and she's like no he's just hanging loose you need to hang loose Matthew I was getting confused with I'm see I'm cc Because you have to be careful. Just because they say they're a Christian band doesn't mean that they're really doing devout things and actually what they're singing is in line with the Bible. Because Yahushua is not standing at the right hand of the Father. And everyone's singing along, you know. And what's the other one that everybody sings? Oh, yeah, he is the universe. I'm like, no, he's not the universe. You are the universe. No, you're not. He created the universe. And everyone is all happy. You are the... I'm like, good grief, you know? You have to be careful today. They slip it in everywhere, don't they? Slip it in everywhere. I've gone way off track. Number two. She's nodded in the back. Thank you. This is the second thing our author states here. We'll never get through this at this rate, will we? Number two, the priesthood, he says this, the priesthood was given to Aaron and his sons before the golden calf incident. What would really bring clarity to this article and the book of the law, book of the covenant polemic, is understanding, like I said, that that Torah is not chronological, it's achronological. And Hebrews 7.11 actually testifies to this truth, stating that the book of the law was given under the Levitical priesthood, which was determined at the golden calf breach. That's Bible, that's solid, that's concrete. Torah is achronological. This interpretation of Torah being achronological allows for thematic considerations within the Torah to place certain Torah readings together, even though each Parsha may have been given at different times. Even the renowned Jewish rabbi Rashi himself believed that Torah was composed this way, believing himself that the reason for the break in the narrative at Exodus 25 with the tabernacle was because of the golden calf breach. Rashi, the great Jewish rabbi, 
believed. The only reason that there was a break in the narrative at Exodus 25 was because of the golden calf breach, and that's why they had to have a physical manifest tabernacle, because they didn't and couldn't understand the heavenly reality. So, again, another example where Torah is achronological is Exodus 16, verse 33. Within the narrative of Manna Week, that's the narrative which is chronological, you find a command that is put in there that is achronological. It's impossible to put the command to lay up the jar of manna in the Ark of the Testimony in chapter 16, when the Ark of the Testimony wasn't created right? Case in point. I mean, I love the concrete word of Yah, but these things take time, okay? And a little maturity on all parts, including myself. And I really have to try. You know I'm weak, and I struggle, and I can be sarcastic, and I can be caustic, and I'm really trying right now. So I, I, I pray for me, because you guys don't understand, I am on the front lines and I get absolutely hammered spiritually and on this social media network called the internet. But, you know, I try not to listen to it and go, okay, I want to use this for the educational and edification benefit of the brethren because that's where the real reward is. So let's keep going, right? Okay, now he goes on to say, the third point, he says, is God says that we are blessed when we keep his commands contained in the book of the law. Exactly. You are blessed and cursed. There's blessings and curses, plural. The blessing is, guess what? You're in the book of the law. You're not dead. That's a major blessing, isn't it? Major blessing, because the other choice was you're dead. Because you broke the book of the covenant, Yahweh says, genocide, wiping out the nation. How he got from zero to genocide, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're we live in a tolerant society. But that just shows you, doesn't it, how, how, how much no we're noodles today. Everybody's got to be tolerant. Well, you know what? Yahweh was intolerant of sin. And, and we need to be a little bit more intolerant of sin. That doesn't mean being intolerant of the sinner, but we do need to be intolerant of sin, which includes lying within our assemblies. Do you agree? Intolerant of sin. In my life, in your lives, we cannot tolerate it because it is a cancer. And the only reason that Yahweh was going to commit genocide on Israel is because they were sinning and unrepentant. But Moshe was repentant, and he mediated, and Yahweh did not wipe out the nation of Israel, and he brought in the book of the law as a schoolmaster until the time of Reformation when Shiloh would come and instigate the until change of law clause, which returns us into covenant Torah fidelity under the blood atonement. That's a position I want to live in because there are no curses, plural, 
in the book of the covenant. There is only one limited family curse. Honor your mother and father, otherwise you will be cursed, right? You won't inherit the land. But the curses, plural, are in the book of the law. So when our author states, God says that we are blessed when we keep his commands contained in the book of the law, that doesn't prove a synonymous relationship. It just proves that, yes, it's a blessing to be alive and not to be wiped out. But also, if you don't recognize the until clause and the change that Yahushua says, if you don't keep all the commandments contained in the book of the law, Galatians chapter 3 tells us you are actually under a curse. So if you want to live in an undivided Torah, in Messiah, you're actually cursed. And now you understand that heavy, cursed spirit that is upon the Hebrew roots and the Messianic movement. It's called white-knuckling it. They're literally white-knuckling their religious walk, and it's a sad thing. There is a lack of joy, a lack of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which is why you get these hostile um, documents that are sent to you and a lot of that causticness that you see in the Messianic movement that I've come out of, that I'm trying to shed that too because I was a big part of it as well, and I've made my public repentance. You can go and look at the CDs and the DVDs. They're all archived somewhere on somebody's computer. You know they are. Everything I've said publicly is all of my mistakes. See, he said that. The fourth thing that this um, author says is there is no reason to believe that covenants made after Exodus 24:8 are somehow less valid or binding. Here's the problem. We're not saying that they're less valid or less binding, but every time that you find the Hebrew word Brit does not mean that it's a covenant. It could be an, a law enactment, an agreement. It doesn't mean it's a covenant, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's a covenant of promise. We're talking about Malkitzedic covenants of promise that are always have an agreement an accept, a proposal, excuse me, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal. So the author's fourth statement is based upon not understanding systematic covenant theology. And that's not a slight, it's just a fact, which again can cause great confusion to people that truly want to learn. It becomes a stumbling block, and I hope that I can remove the stumbling blocks. That's what I'm called to do whether it was the stumbling blocks of being a heathen and what the world is trying to propagate, whether it's the stumbling blocks of Christmas and Easter and all the pagan stuff that we were told to do in the church under the name of Jesus. That's called syncretism. That's a stumbling block to the neophyte, the new believer. And now I'm trying to remove the stumbling blocks that have come to those of us that are actually in the meat of the word. doesn't mean you've got to dress up like a Jew and go and support the Ashkenazi. Because another thing that is a common problem that we see with today's author and last week's author, they're all Christian Zionists turned messianic. There's a common court. They truly believe that the Ashkenazi are the real Jews. When it tells us in the book of Revelation that we are to be aware and beware of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews and are not. I'm a Zionist, 
But I'm a biblical Zionist. I believe in honoring the Yahudim, the Jews. That is, the Jews of the Bible. But I also believe in the Bible, which tells me to be aware of the synagogue of Satan. And if the unbelieving world wants to call me a name because I believe in the written word, then so be it. You stand for biblical truth. But to plot with the new world order and the globalists is what is common with these authors. And we need to be very aware of it. Biblical Israel is very distinct from the state of Israel that was invented in 1948 by a bunch of Christ-hating Theodore Herzl supporters. That's a fact. It doesn't sit well with followers of John Hagee, which many of us were because we often in this country grew up as evangelicals. And that's not a slight on evangelicals. It's just saying we are growing from the milk to the meat as the prophetic realm unravels right before our eyes. And we should be excited to live in these last days and be those that are coming in that will stand on the sea of glass. And we have the common testimony of Yahushua and keeping his commands. But that doesn't mean you have to be a Judaizer. The fifth thing, we're only halfway there, Matthew. Good night. Can somebody bring me a cup of tea? No, the missus is leaving. What, what, are you do- what are you doing? She's literally... Are you taking Andrea with you to... Oh, my, I see how, all right then. Wow. You see, a prophet gets no honor back in his house. No. Thank you, though. The fifth thing he says, there's a change in priesthood. Oh, this one's a good one. This really, this is a big tell. The change in priesthood was not a change to the earthly priesthood. This is what the author says. He goes on to say this. These are not my words. These are the author's quote. Now, if there were, if now, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. That's a quote of Hebrews 8, 4, and that's correct. And then he goes on to say this. Hebrews 8, 4 tells us that Yeshua cannot be a priest on earth. Actually, he doesn't say that. Because according to the law, the earthly priesthood was given to Aaron, Exodus 28.1. This tells us that Yeshua's heavenly priesthood did not affect the earthly priesthood. That's what the author states. Using Hebrews 8.6, I've come across this many, many a times. The author is actually using parts of Hebrews but ignoring vital texts like Hebrews 7, 11, and 12, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We have to realize 
that the text is all present or present past tense, as in it's already happened 2,000 years ago. What did Yahushua said? What did Yahushua say to us? He said, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, do we believe that? On earth as it... So has Yahushua's priesthood come to earth? Yes. Is it on earth as it is in heaven? Let thy will be done. And where is this ever-present Levitical priesthood? Where is it? It hasn't been around since 70 of the common era. So where is it? You see? You see how this... At first it sounds good because it's a slight twisting of Hebrews 8.6. But if you actually read the whole of Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, you'll realize that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is the fact that if there had not been Shiloh... If, in fact, Yahushua had not manifest and come to the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10, then there wouldn't have been able to implement the change of law clause. If there was no change of law clause, then it would be impossible for him to be a priest on earth. Is Yahushua the Messiah? Did Yahushua implement the Genesis 49.10, Hebrews 7.11, Hebrews 7.12 change of law clause? If then, then as in heaven on earth. Do you see? This can cause great confusion to people. When in reality, we can see that on earth as it is in heaven. So... My question to this is always, where are the Levites? We haven't seen them for 2,000 years who offer gifts according to the law. Well, they're not offering gifts according to the law. This shows you that the change of law clause actually has happened on earth. It's not just something in the heavens, is it? No. Let's use equal weights and measures. If the Levitical priesthood isn't on earth, there actually has been a change of law clause, which means that the heavenly Malkitzedic priesthood is on earth, according to 1 Peter 2.9, Hebrews 7.11.12, and Genesis 49.10. This is flip-flop theology. I'm not talking the things you wear on your feet. Those are thongs, and we don't want to confuse that, especially if we've got an English audience. They'll be like, what? You're wearing thongs? That really means something totally different over there. Let me tell you, the first time I heard that, I was like, it's perverted. I'm not going to wear anything like that. But flip-flops, yes. Anyway, flip-flop theology, our author comes from a no-law church mentality. You know how we were taught? Well, all of the law has been done away with, but now he's flipped over to all law. But we need to look at the narrow road, which is the change of law, the implementation of the Malkitzedic Covenant Torah. That's the narrow road. It's very easy, literally, to be no law, with Christmas and Easter, a bit of pagan syncretism, to then flipping to all of law, Purim and Hanukkah, a bit of pagan syncretism, right? 
All you have to do is strap on some seat seats, grow your beard, and you're pretty much the same as what you were, except the pendulum swung way over the other side. But it hasn't actually been an inward change. It's an outward expression of religion. Right? Wrong. So, again, you shine the light in the darkness and everything starts to become quite apparent. The sixth thing our author says is this. Yeshua said that nothing from the Torah, including the book of the law, will pass away until heaven and earth passes away. Matthew 5, 17. Sounds good so far. Then he goes on to say this. Their response was essentially to agree that nothing has passed away, but they said that we still don't have to keep the commandments in the book, contained in the book of the law anymore because of the change in priesthood. I never said that. The book of the law teaching I did a few weeks ago, clearly, that's a false statement, which makes the phrase pass away rather meaningless. That's what the author says. But again, it it becomes aware to me, painfully aware, in fact, that our author hasn't read and understood the polemic to begin with, with statements like these. Because in Matthew 5, 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. But Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. I am come, I am come. That means until Shiloh come, the first time. Think not that I am come to destroy, but to fulfill. Does that include the Genesis 49.10? Did we forget to include that in our statement? Because to me, that would include the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10, obviously during his earthly lifetime, till all be fulfilled, including the Genesis 49.10, which has already happened, and unfolding Yahweh's kingdom and his Malkit-Zedek priesthood, as in heaven on earth today, the until clause is part of that fulfillment. You have to use equal weights and measures. So our author is deciding that commandments are inapplicable, whereas nowhere does the Bible sanction certain commandments as inapplicable outside of the sanction change that I've already stated. So again, we have to be careful of this double talk and hypocrisy when we get, well, you know, it's inconvenient or impractical for me to keep those commandments today. That's a big red flag for me. So number seven, um, the author states, God has more than ten commandments. Um, That's a, a position that I've taught. He has more than ten commandments. He says this. As briefly mentioned above, one of the aspects of their hypothesis is that all of the commandments contained in the book of the covenant were written on stone tablets. However, Deuteronomy 5.22 states that it was only the Ten Commandments that were written on the two tablets. After Moses gets done repeating the Ten Commandments, he says thus. These words 
that Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on the two tablets of stone and gave to me. So the author is taking the Masoretic text, the King James Version, and he's honing in on, and he added no more. He wrote Ten Commandments and he added no more. But if you actually look at the Hebrew word and you look at Deuteronomy 4.1, Deuteronomy 5.1, Deuteronomy 9.10, Deuteronomy 10.4 and investigate that a little bit deeper, you'll find that the phrase on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly identifies one day in particular the giving of the entire book of the covenant at Sinai. Context, Exodus 19, 5 to 24, 11. In fact, there's a big difference between the day of the assembly and the 40 days of the one man Moses and where it says, and he added no more. The Hebrew phrase there is low and it, it's a primitive particle and it means surely of a truth more. So you could translate it in the King James Version that he added no more, or better, the Hebrew translation, and he added for a truth more of the covenant because he was giving the covenant right there in the context. So again, this is easily refuted when you actually look at the Hebrew and the context of the giving of the covenant. But to somebody who's just hearing and maybe, oh, really excited about the Malkitzedek, it can set you back on your heels and really cause you to, to fall backwards in your faith rather than progressing forward. And I don't want that for any of us because my life, my testimony is that my life has become so much richer so much more powerful in prayer, in prophecy, in revelation as I am walking in the Malkitzedic priesthood. So much more. I look back of when my children were young and we were heavily in the Messianic movement. Ten years ago, ten years ago, I was traveling around as a Messianic teacher. And that was... It was heavy, and you'd go to these assemblies, and there'd be small assemblies of 30 or 40 people all over the nation, and the spirit of oppression, and these poor wives that were just bundled down with just all this religious garb and bound up as their husbands lived this very, very male-dominant, patriarchal kind of lifestyle. It was so sad to see. And I always wondered, where's the Holy Spirit? And I kind of started to miss Calvary Chapel, to tell you the truth. I really did. I started to miss the Christian church because I missed the love. I missed the spirit. But I was like, well, I can't go back to all of that pagan syncretism. But this isn't it. Yeah, there's some truth here. But it's apparent to me this is a heavy religious spirit that is based on Judaism. But there's some truth. But we shouldn't have to be like this. Who says we have to dress up in like pantomime Jewish 
garb to be Bible believers. Where did that come from? And why do we have to use all these Hebrew words? I'm English. I'm never going to be fluent in Hebrew. Where, where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't say that we have to do all this. It says that we're to be converted in heart and to love Yahweh our Elohim with all our heart, soul, and strength that we would be his people. And if you turn and you seek me with your whole heart, I will reveal myself to you and show you my covenant. Praise Yah for that. Praise Yah for that. I'm so glad I've been delivered from religion. The broad road upon the left, the broad road upon the right, and the Malkitzedek is spirit-filled covenant fidelity. It's Torah, but it's Yahweh's Torah, which is free. It's for all mankind to repent and come into. It's a beautiful thing. It truly, truly is. And I, I just am overwhelmed at his grace and mercy and long-suffering with me. I look back on those days. Number eight, he goes on to say, I am long-winded today, am I not? Sorry, guys. I have one person saying I wasn't. All right, the rest of We'll talk afterwards. Number eight, he says this, There is no reason to assume that the commands placed on the side of the ark are less important or valid than the commands placed inside the ark. Oh, okay. But we have to understand, what was placed in the ark is separate to what Yahweh therefore placed on the side of the ark. What is inside the ark is more important than what was outside or in the side of the ark. The jar of manna is very important. The rod of Aaron that budded is very important. And the tablets of the testimony are more important than the things on the outside. So this is a very, very easy to refute argument point number eight. Because the Bible tells us that what was in the side was a witness against them because they broke what was inside. So again, then he goes on to state, number nine, there is no evidence that this theory is true. We have 10 points from last week and in the description below that this is actually easy, very easy statement to disprove. The book of Jubilees testifies to the separation of the book of the law because it begins with verse 1 of the book of the law, Exodus 24, verse 12. Christianity, number 2, has historically understood a distinction in law. There's the moral law as opposed to the ceremonial law. They're disparate. Christianity has recognized it, even though they haven't recognized it within the polemic of Book of the Law, Book of the Covenant, they have understood a separation of law. Number three, Old Testament proof. Genesis 49 is Old Testament proof. New Testament proof, we have Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, uses the name book of the law by name, and Hebrews 7, 11, and 12 give us, in fact, New Testament proof of the evidence that this theory is true. Even Rashi, number four, he testifies that this theory is 
true that there is a distinction between the book of the law and the book of the covenant. Number five, the Jewish encyclopedia testifies that there is a distinction between the book of the law and the book of the covenant. Um, professor of Hebrew and Semitic languages at the University of Pennsylvania testifies that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are distinct and separate. Number seven, the Eloist, the E, or according to the liberal modern documentary hypothesis, which I don't agree with, but even they understand that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are disparate and separate. Oxford University Press has published several books where they believe that the codes of the covenant and the law were independently constructed. And then we have number nine. David Perry is actually a doctor of theology, and he got his doctrinal degree based upon his thesis that he submitted to independent scholarly review his peers, and they gave him a doctorate based upon his exposition that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are separate and disparate. That is very weighty. We don't want to gloss over that. And number 10, of course, the book of the law is first alluded to in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. Write a copy of this law in a book. Why? Because Moses had already had the book of the covenant back in Exodus 24, verse 7. There's a separation and a clear distinction then. So now we're at our author's final point. Thank you for hanging in there. There's a lot to cover. But again, I hope it's actually been quite fun for me this time because of last week's teaching kind of pre... I was finding a lot of the same things, so it really wasn't too much work. Number 10, this is what our author says. The apostles all continue to keep and teach the commands contained in the book of the law. Well, Paul did actually say what? That he would use all means to try and save some. And that would include the legalists and the Pharisees, as I'm trying to do today our author included. So again, we want to reach out to the Judaizers and we want to meet them where they're at. But that doesn't mean that we believe what they believe, does it? Paul said that he would, in fact, by all means, try and save some. But what we can't negate is that Paul was on what was called the cusp of the law transition. And he was in the midst of that with false witnesses being raised up at the stoning of Stephen, accusing them of one thing, the very accusations that I'm being accused of and this ministry is being accused of. So Paul was in the cusp of the law transition point. But I wonder, did our author forget or would he rather ignore Acts chapter 15:10, where it says, Now therefore, why tempt ye Elohim to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Of course, this had to do with the book of the law. 
this had to do with the book of the law. Did he forget that? Acts 15 verse 21, yes, they were to learn the complete Torah. How else are we rightly to divide it? Of course we're to learn the whole of the Bible. How can we not rightly divide the word of truth if we're not studying and learning from both the book of the covenant, the book of the law, and the prophets, and the writings, and the New Testament? The whole of the word from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation is profitable for doctrine and for reproof. We've already discovered this and we teach this so again these are very important that we drill down a little bit but furthermore acts chapter 15 verse 20 we were told again what were the um, disciples doing they were teaching the book of the covenant to abstain from sexual immorality to abstain from things strangled and blood to abstain from what? These things that are actually in the book of the covenant code and then go to synagogue on Shabbat and learn more from the teachings of Moses. So again, Paul was on the cusp of the law transition point and he taught the book of the covenant as did the disciples. So I hope this Matthew Nolan and David Perry's Malkitzedic doctrine, subtracting from Torah, can actually now be used for good, not just as a stumbling block to those that truly are seeking truth. We try to reach out to those Judaizers, and we hope that they will come into the fullness to realize that what is in heaven is now a reality on earth. But if you're bound up in the messianic movement, you're not going to experience the reality of what was in heaven is actually available for us today. We can be spirit-filled Bible believers in Yahushua, but we don't have to be Judaizers. We don't have to be lawless and syncretizing Christmas and Easter any more than we have to be all law syncretizing pagan Purim and Hanukkah either. The midway point is understanding that the book of the covenant has been given as Torah based upon better promises because of the redemptive work of Shiloh who has come and fulfilled prophecy. That is the joy that I hope this ministry can really proclaim in these days because we are witnessing witnessing the tree, the branches rotting off in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement. And they should be submarine captains because it's literally dive bombing. But you can see that the growth is exponential with people coming into the Malkitzedek. It's, it's what people have been hungering for, knowing that as converted believers in Yahushua, yes, we're to be keeping the commandments, but it's got to be a narrow road. It can't be all this broad road stuff, dressing up like Jews and heading off to um, the state of Israel to get radicalized. That's no answer. But we can't go back either, because once you set your hand to the plow, you've got to just keep on going. So, 
I keep on going, we keep on going, and we pray that Yahuwah blesses those that have an ear to hear and eyes to see. Do we have questions, comments? I hope that this was, uh, it was fun for me this week, because like I say, it wasn't too much. All we do, we have somebody either doing boogie nights in the tech room or have their hand up. I'm not sure which one it is. I think it's boogie nights. No, that's it, no. All right, we will close. He was doing boogie nights. Father Yahweh, we thank you and we pray your bracha, your blessing upon your people and that your blessing would be upon those other that would seek and find your way in the truth of Messiah Yahushua. Amen. Amen. Thank you.